The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Freeze Art Fair and Spring Auctions in New York, a copyright case involving the artist Richard Prince and Sarah Z's new work in London. As the Freeze Art Fair returns to the shed in Manhattan, coinciding with the season's big auctions, the art newspaper's live editor, Amy Dawson, and our contributing editor, Annie Shaw, take the temperature of the market in New York. Just as we completed this episode, the US Supreme Court ruled that Andy Warhol infringed on the photographer Lynn Goldstein's copyright when he created a series of silk screens based on her photograph of the late rock singer Prince. Coincidentally, we'd already recorded an interview with our New York correspondent Laura Gilbert about the fact that a Manhattan judge last week refused to throw out two photographers' long-running copyright lawsuits against the artist Richard Prince for his new portrait series, which appropriated their original images. The case is bound to be affected by the Supreme Court's decision, as Laura tells us. And this episode's Work of the Week is Metronome by Sarah Z, a new site-specific work made for a former first-class waiting room at Peckham Rye Station in South London, which until recently had been almost derelict. I speak to Sarah about this new installation. Don't forget you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the Freeze Art Fair is back at The Shed, the arts venue in Manhattan, for this year's edition. As ever, it coincides with the latest sales at the major auction houses in New York, and so is one of the key moments in the year to take in the art market landscape in the US and more generally. Our live editor, Amy Dawson, and contributing editor, Annie Shaw, are at the fair. Here's their report. So, Annie, we're here in New York, very, very busy week, full of auctions and fairs. And last week, it kind of all kicked off with Tefaf. It's now kind of called the spring fair and auction season, rather than focusing specifically on Freeze New York. But let's talk about Freeze. It opened yesterday uh, to VIPs. What was the mood? Was it busy? Tell us about it. Yeah, you know, there was a good buzz in the morning and that was sort of steadily maintained throughout the day. You know, the booths were busy, but it's not an enormous venue, so it's not really hard to to feel busy there. But, you know, Freeze did a great job of controlling the crowds so and didn't sort of feel too busy at any point. And, you know, there was a decent curatorial cohort, not only from the US, but from Europe and beyond. We saw Klaus Biesenbach, Annie Philbin, Cecilia Alemanni and so on in the aisles. No mega celebrities that we're used to. We, no. You know, there wasn't the Leonardo DiCaprios of the world. No, in there. and we were hoping to see possibly Prince Harry and Meghan Markle because they had been in town exactly. for an award ceremony the night before, but then there was news that they'd been in some paparazzi chase, and so yeah. they weren't heading to Freeze. Sounds quite terrifying, yeah. yeah. So no sort of A-list celebrities, but there was a cool crowd, you know, and Freeze is known for its sort of hip cool crowd. There was a fashion designer, Jonathan Anderson, um, Michael Stipe of REM, and um, I saw Tracy Emin in the booths as Xavier Hufkins, her Belgian gallery. So, you know, a good crowd. Yeah, there are lots of Tracy Emin works on the stands. Yes, yes. White Cube and, and Xavier Hufkins. Yeah, exactly. yeah, very popular. 
So let's talk a little bit about the venue because it used to be held at Randall's Island, which is a bit further out, not in kind of your classic art gallery centres for Manhattan. It used to be in the classic Freeze big white tent. Now it's in a venue called The Shed, which, you know, the irony is not lost there from a tent to a shed. It is quite small. So this was my first Freeze New York and I was surprised at how small it is. And the fact that it's over four floors, which I think might lose some people. So the ground floor was very, very busy Mm. when I arrived, you know, a couple of hours after the doors opened but then you do feel that it gets much emptier the further up this huge building you go yeah I mean look the the shed's a really cool venue it's this relatively new building it was my first freeze at the shed also I've I've previously attended on Randall's Island which is a schlep to get up to it's miles away you know the shed's a really cool venue and it it was built to sort of house performances and other exhibitions um, and other events it was designed as a matchbox so it's got this sort of retractable skin which pulls back over the summer during the summer months sort of expose this atrium where I think they have sort of open air performances but as you say for fair it's quite small there are 68 galleries in there which you know is a snip compared to the Randall's Island tent which I think housed about 190 galleries Mm. and I actually heard from one big curator yesterday that they are possibly looking for another venue now this is unconfirmed it's a rumor I've reached out to Freeze they haven't responded I reached out very early this morning I should say you know it's not fair to have expected them to respond So, you know, I don't know how active that is and and whether that's founded. I also understand that Freeze has just signed another three-year lease with the Shed, so there are obviously no imminent plans to move. But as I mentioned, you know, there is an issue over size with no room for expansion at the Shed, and there are a fair amount of galleries opening in New York at the moment, so I wonder whether they're all going to want to exhibit at Freeze New York at some point. And some of the bigger galleries I spoke to yesterday said they didn't love the venue. You know, they're used to having these sort of substantial booths at other art fairs with, with a bit more light, perhaps. But then others really like the intimate scale. And, you know, as a journalist, I, for one, have to say, you know, it makes my life a lot easier. Yeah. So, you know, it's a great location. It's smack bang in the middle of Chelsea. So, you know, loads of galleries within spitting distance. So it's a real, it's a real buzz. It's a real hub. Let's talk about some of the works that caught your eye, some of the talking points at Freeze. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to draw attention to to Michael Rosenfeld's booth. I wrote about this for the first edition of our daily papers. And he has dedicated his booth to feminist artists who were working at the time of the landmark Roe versus Wade ruling in 1973. Of course, 2023, it should have been the year that we celebrated the 50th anniversary of that ruling. And last year, the US Supreme Court overruled that, effectively recriminalising abortion in several states. And that, you know, was a move that stunned many, I think, not just in the art world. So for this piece, I spoke to to Nancy Grossman, who who has works on Michael Rosenfeld's stand. Now, she's known for those sort of really quite hardcore wooden sculpted heads, which are then sort of leather stretched over them. There's sort of a bit of a bonded vibe to them. And I spoke to her for this piece. You know, she's in her 80s and just a phenomenal woman just, you know, saying that for her, that the overturning of Road versus Way came out of the back room. She just thinks the world's gone crazy and the regression is is frankly horrifying. There are works by the second wave feminists on that stand, including Lee Bontecu, Alma Thomas and Betty Saar. So that's a great stand. It's a very powerful political statement. And I mean, you hope to see something like that in New York. Yeah. Very different from kind of your Miami fair, which is a lot less punchy yeah. in terms of 
you know, curated booths like that from a gallery. Definitely. Another dominant theme are the single artist or double artist booths. I think a lot of galleries are plumped for that this year. Gagosian often dedicates a booth to a single artist at the Freeze Fairs in London, LA and New York. This year, they've got new works by Nan Golden on the stand, which are just stonking, I think. She's recently been taken on by Gagosian, so this is sort of the first outing for her with the gallery. And there, her works are priced between $65,000 and $90,000. So relatively affordable, relatively, I stress. <laughs> you know, I think the gallery's mandate is really to bring attention back to her work, which has been so influential to, you know, a whole new generation of photographers and artists. You know, of course, she's had a lot of attention recently for her activism, which is highly commendable. But I think there's a sense that it's really time to focus on her work and indeed her market, which I don't think is really where it should be um, for an artist of her talent and standing. Mm. So that is another highlight for me. Have there been any early sales? It's very early days. I know only just finished the VIP day, but has anything come through? Yes, so... As I mentioned, the solo artist booths are popular this year. So Stephen Friedman is showing works by Pam Glick and he sold five paintings by her for $55,000 each. Pace also has a solo booth of paintings by the hot young LA artist Robert Nava. Eleven were pre-sold before the fair opened and four sold on the opening day so that the gallery wanted to make sure there were some works available on the stand to people who'd who'd bothered to make the journey, you know, not bought off a JPEG prize to the fair opening. And his works were going for about thirty to eighty thousand dollars, which are a fraction of his auction prices, which routinely now fetch about half a million dollars. And this is actually a, a key point in the market at the moment because what's happened with certainly ultra contemporary artists is that Auction prices have just risen out of step with their primary market gallery prices. That's because there's been such a demand for these artists' works. Collectors who can't get onto the primary gallery waiting lists are sort of forced almost to to buy auction instead, and there's been enormous competition. But with that market beginning to cool, um, not only at auction, but, you know, elsewhere the gallery prices are now going to have to be adjusted down as well, I think, to be sort of in parallel with, with the auction prices. So, yeah, it feels like there's a lot of speculation leaving that market, but nonetheless, these works are relatively affordable and selling well at Freeze New York. Nice. This is a great opportunity to talk about the auctions from this week. There have been lots. Can you give us a summary? And also, what is the tone of these sales? Are they doing super well, like last year? No, I don't think they are. It would be fair to describe them as spotty or mixed. I mean, there have been some good results, some great results, but there have also been some misses. You know, look, there's, I think, at least 10 auctions over these two weeks with over two billion worth of art going on sale. And that's a lot of art to sell. And the big question is, is there enough demand to absorb it all? And certainly with things like inflation playing a massive part, you know, money is expensive people are thinking more before they buy. So this is all playing into the auction market. So as I say, I think overall the results have been mixed, notably absent this month and across these two weeks. So any works with nine-figure estimates, you know, or even estimates into the high eights, we haven't got a marquee Paul Allen or Maclo sale to really boost results. Among the top lots, there was an Ed Ruscher. It was a very small, I think, 30-inch painting, and it sold at Christie's 20th Century Evening Sale for 23 million with fees. And that went on a single bid, which sort of tells you that there's not a great deal of depth. The oxygen's very thin at the top of the market. 
that work was estimated for 20 to 30 million dollars so it's quite a punchy estimate we're seeing sort of slightly lower estimates at the moment prices are coming down slightly with, with this cooling of the market but that was a punchy estimate and of course 23 million against an estimate of 20 to 30 million doesn't look so good you know a lot of it is about perception and smoke and mirrors with the auction market you know how does something compare with its estimate if it had flown over a lower estimate we might have been shouting about it a great deal more um, so true yeah marketing marketing <laughs> well it's the auction houses are marketers um, extraordinaires mm. the other big lot was a painting by Jean-Michel Basquiat which sold for 67 million with fees at Christie's again but in their 21st century evening sale and that was an essentially a single lot sale you know that lot accounted for over half of the overall total of that auction so it just goes to show all you need is one stonking work Larry Gagosian was an underbidder mm. and then a second party, you know, very deep pocketed individual to keep the market turning over at that level. So, again, it's extraordinary what's happening at the very top. But I think that kind of masks what's happening at lower levels. And if you look at some of the sell through rates, which means the percentage sold by lot rather than value, you know, Christie's 20th century evening sale was 81% sold by lot, which, you know, had the same sale been a year ago, I think the numbers would have been higher Sotheby's modern art sale was 83% sold by lot with six lots withdrawn prior. So, you know, that sell-through rate could have been a lot worse. And, 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 you know, with six lots is quite a lot to have withdrawn prior. So it it could indicate some pre-sale nerves from the consigner there. So I think, you know, overall, high interest rates have definitely contributed to a cooler market. Money is expensive and people aren't really speculating anymore. How about gallery shows? Because obviously when the spotlight is on two weeks of all of this activity galleries tend to bring out their best artists or their newest works so what have you seen that's great yeah there I mean there are a ton of great shows on in New York at the moment and you know I really miss this in London there's a real sort of concentration of galleries around Chelsea and you can really blitz you know a dozen more 20 galleries in in an afternoon in a day a couple of galleries who aren't here at freeze new york have got great shows on barclay hendrix photographs at jack shaman is a really great sort of historical show and then uh, last night i saw a fantastic show at lemon malpin of new paintings by hernan bass now they're enormous he must have painted about 10 more maybe a dozen paintings in the past or a few months so a quick painter but they're quite dark and um, and just fantastically painted so I'd highly recommend those two. Also, Luke Toyman's at David's Verner. That was a real standout for me. I would like to also mention an exhibition, which is not a gallery show, but this is a quite an, an interesting show, um, which the New York theatrical producer Jenna Segal has put together, which is not recreating exactly, but she's creating a collection of works by the all-female cast of artists who are featured in an historic show mounted by Peggy Guggenheim at her Manhattan Gallery in 1943. And now that exhibition was titled Exhibition of 31 Women. It's said to be the first dedicated exclusively to women in the US. So over the past three years, Seagal has been acquiring works by these women, not the works that were in the original show, because that's a nigh on impossible task. There's no list of titles from that show. There's no photographic evidence. But she's decided to try and collect works from the women who were in that show, created around the time of that show. And she's managed to acquire almost 150 works by 30 of the women. But one remains elusive, and this is Gypsy Rose Lee, who was really famous in her day as a stripper and a burlesque entertainer and less well-known, but was also a visual artist creating paintings and collages. 
so it's just this fantastic story that Seagal's trying to recreate, you know, or trying to bring these works by these women back to life, uh, many of whom have been sort of overlooked since. And Seagal is actually, you know, she's renting the space where Peggy Guggenheim's Manhattan Gallery was. So she's in the same venue with these works and also quite a lot of archival material, which is just fascinating. So I think it's a great show. And she's still on the hunt for a piece yeah, she is, by the elusive gypsy. Yeah. She was offered, she told me, a crocheted cheese string that was allegedly once owned by Gypsy, though I think the provenance was a bit lacking, so she, <laughs> she politely declined. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us and have a great time in New York. Thank you. Freeze New York continues until Sunday, the 21st of May. Coming up, the Richard Prince copyright case and Sarah Z in London. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The University of Oxford has ended its relationship with the Sackler family after protests from staff and students. Several members of the Sackler family were the owners of Purdue Pharma, the company that produced OxyContin, the painkiller at the heart of the deadly opioid epidemic in the US. The university will remove the Sackler name from the Ashmolean Museum, the university's Museum of Art and Archaeology, and the Bodleian Libraries, as well as three research positions at the Ashmolean. The university said it had not received a monetary donation from the family since 2019. Five men from a Berlin family were this week sentenced to prison for carrying out the spectacular theft of Baroque jewels at Dresden's historic Green Vault in 2019. The men smashed a vitrine that housed three ensembles of royal jewels comprising diamonds and pearls that belonged to the Saxon elector Augustus the Strong and his family. Those sentenced, all aged under 30, are members of the notorious Remo crime family. They received prison sentences ranging from four years and four months to six years and three months for dangerous bodily injury, arson, arm theft and damage to property. Two of the men on trial were previously found guilty of stealing a giant gold coin from Berlin's Bode Museum two years before the Dresden burglary. And finally, the prominent art advisor Lisa Schiff, who in 2021 spoke on this podcast about the market for contemporary painting, has reportedly closed her business, SFA Advisory, after clients accused her of using sales proceeds to defraud them as part of a system of deception allegedly operated through her companies. The collector, Candice Carmel Barash, and the lawyer Richard Grossman filed a lawsuit in the New York Supreme Court on the 11th of May, claiming that Schiff failed to pay them $1.8 million that she owed after brokering the sale of an agent. Guinea painting at Sotheby's Hong Kong. Court documents list five counts of breach of contract, conversion, fraud, breach of fiduciary duty and conspiracy. Multiple attempts by the art newspaper to reach Schiff and her lawyer John Cahill have gone unanswered. You can read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This June, Christie's presents the Robin and Rupert Hambro collection. Assembled by the couple who shared a lifelong passion for the arts, the collection includes works of art from their homes in Ebury Street, London, Copps Farm in Berkshire and Saint-Rémy in Provence. A former editor of Vogue, Robin Hambro's eye for fashion and design is evident throughout the collection, which seamlessly blends modern and traditional fine and decorative art. From old masters to 20th and 21st century modern art, the results reveal an inspirational art 
artistic vision. The collection bears witness to two extraordinary people and celebrates their life-enhancing legacy. The live auction will take place at Christie's King Street on the 8th of June. Ahead of the London View from the 2nd to the 7th of June, highlights will be exhibited at Christie's Paris from the 22nd to the 26th of May. Entry is free and open to all. For more information, visit christies.com. Welcome back. Now, as I mentioned just before we completed this week's episode on Thursday, the Supreme Court ruled that Andy Warhol infringed on the photographer Lynn Goldstein's copyright when he created a series of silk screens based on her photograph of the late singer Prince. The Supreme Court's ruling was a 7-2 to two majority and will have a potentially huge impact on the rights of artists across the cultural field's ability to appropriate existing material. One of the dissenting justices, Eleanor Kagan, wrote that the majority opinion will stifle creativity of every sort. I discussed the case in depth with the art historian and lawyer Virginia Rutledge on the podcast last June as the amicus briefs were filed to the Supreme Court. It reached the highest US court because the Andy Warhol Foundation, which looks after the artist estate, petitioned the Supreme Court to challenge a ruling by the Second Circuit Appeals Court in March 2021 that found that Warhol infringed Goldstein's copyright. But the Supreme Court has upheld the Second Circuit's ruling. This is what Rutledge said about the implications of that decision. What the Second Circuit ruled is there is a new test that should be applied when looking at questions of infringement involving visual art. The Second Circuit suggested that it was not enough to see a new meaning or message, which is the standard set by the Supreme Court in 1994, but that instead, when there were two works, when a follow-on work looks too much like a previous work. In other words, when you can recognize the source material in some way, then the work is infringing. And that is the ruling of the Second Circuit that is so troubling to so many people because it puts into question the legitimacy from a legal perspective of generations of artists working in modes that use source material. And when you look at the history of not just Western art, but a history of any art that includes popular culture, popular media, you can see the problems right away. Now, one case that is certain to be affected by the Supreme Court's ruling relates to the artist Richard Prince. A Manhattan judge last week refused to throw out two long-running copyright lawsuits against the artist for his series called New Portraits. Prince created the images by appropriating posts from users on Instagram or using found images for his own posts, adding comments and then printing them on canvas. US District Judge Sidney Stein signed a consolidated ruling on the 12th of May after Prince moved for a summary judgment in two New York cases brought by the photographers Donald Graham and Eric McNatt, whose original images were featured in the series, which was shown in exhibitions at the Gagosian and Bloom and Poe galleries. Judge Stein's ruling follows a memorable dispute relating to Prince's works based on a photograph by Patrick Carriou. To find out more, I spoke to our correspondent in New York, Laura Gilbert, who's been following the case. Laura, so this case relates to the new portraits by Richard Prince. What are they? The new portraits is a series of images that Richard Prince created by scanning the internet, looking for portraits that he liked. He used his phone to take screenshots of them. He then used an inkjet printer, printed them out on canvas, exhibited them, sold them. 
one of the things that he did was he preserved the framework of the Instagram images that he had taken screenshots of and preserved some of the comments below the images themselves. And even wrote new ones himself, he did, didn't he? He did, what he called gobbledygook and other things that are really not quite clear to the reader of the, you know, whoever reads the comments, right? But nonetheless, he sees this as a really crucial factor in the work. If you look at his arguments about these works, he says that the text is one of the ways in which he is transforming the images that he found, right? That's correct. The court disagreed very (laughs) vehemently. In fact, uh, he said, no, we have to look at the visual image. We have to look at the portraits themselves. And to those images, Prince made almost no changes at all. He cropped them very slightly. And that is of the two images that the court was considering in this most recent decision. Those were the only changes that would be immediately visible. But you'd have to look really carefully even to see those, that they were so modest. That's right. And the two people that have sued Richard Prince and his galleries, it should be said, are Donald Graham and Eric McNatt. Can we say more about who they are? They're photographers, basically, right? Yes, Donald Graham and Eric McNatt are both professional photographers. This is how they make their living. They both exhibited in various places, Graham in particular. He's had his art shown in museums, in fact. And so one of their complaints here was, you are using my work without compensating me, and my livelihood depends on my ability to be compensated for my work. Right. Donald Graham's work is called Rastafarian Smoking a Joint. Yes. And Eric McNatt is a portrait of Kim Gordon. In a way, they're quite instructive about the way that Richard Prince was using the photographs, aren't they? Because on the one hand, Kim Gordon is, is a friend of Richard Prince's. And then Donald Graham, it seems like he chose an image just for the strength of the image when he was looking through Instagram. So there's sort of different purposes for Richard Prince choosing the works that he did. Yes, there are. And um, one of the arguments that Prince made was that some of these images and what his comments were had a personal resonance for him, and that's why he used them. Right. Now, the interesting thing is that this case has been rumbling on for some time, but the reason that we're actually talking about it is because Judge Sidney Stein has made a consolidated ruling in which, as you've hinted at, he comes down very firmly against the idea that this can be dismissed at this point. Can you say more about what he said? Yes. Judge Stein, he used what would be seen as a fairly conventional analysis. The main question is, how much of an alteration does Prince have to make to the original in order for it to be considered a new work that wouldn't be violating the copyright. The term is transformative use, isn't it? Yes, that's its transformative use, which is frequently explained by the courts as adding a new message, a new meaning, a new expression. If Richard Prince's changes had added those new things, or one of them, then the judge may well have ruled the other way. But the judge here found that the changes were so minimal that he couldn't find that the original images had been sufficiently transformed. That's right. So he accepted that there was a kind of transformation. But as you say, he actually used that term minimal. And he said that they were modified without being transformative. So it's, it's very tiny elements of judgment that we're talking about here, isn't it? Well, that's right. And ordinarily, what a judge would do would be to look at the images side by side. And here he concentrated on the photographic images 
without paying much attention to the Instagram framework. And he said, the photographic images, the visual images of the portraits themselves are what I have to look at in order to make my determination. I think one of the interesting things is the way that this case has used examples relating to Richard Prince's earlier case with Patrick Cariou as precedent. And it's really instructive, isn't it? Because the judge clearly says that the argument for transformative use in the Cariou case is not equivalent to here at all. So it's not like all Richard Prince's works are equal. It's very much that this is a kind of use that the judge absolutely sees as non-transformative versus the Cariou pictures. Exactly. What the appellate court found in the Cariou pictures that it said were fair use and not violating copyright, Prince had added a lot of color. He'd used montages. He's obscured the original photograph. But the court examined all of that and said, you know, we compare these and we have to conclude that what Cariou did was he was presenting very serene, composed compositions. Prince had a new aesthetic. He was making them crude and jarring, and he was making them, essentially, he's transforming them into works of his own. Right. And he again argued in this case that there was a form of satire or parody involved. And the judge again dismissed this idea, didn't he? Yes. Prince had said, oh, you know, I'm making a comment on how people communicate on social media. And the judge said, acknowledge, well, maybe if we saw them all together, we'd see that. But what I have before me are two images, and I don't see it here. Moreover, the judge said, Richard Prince, you said something entirely different in your sworn deposition. You said, oh, my goodness, I'm just having fun. So how could he believe that as being a, you know, a valid explanation of the meaning of the works? If you can get through these papers, actually, they're really instructive in relation to art history, art criticism and so on. I noticed that the judge said that there was a murkiness of purpose in Richard Prince's intentions here. And I think that's a really instructive thing about the concept behind these works, because, of course, when you see them in the gallery, they have all this flowery language around them. They are obviously supported by the gallery. They have art critical support and so on. But when it comes to a court of law, there's an interesting judgment that happens there versus the kind of art history, art criticism around these images. And it's interesting that, in a way, the judge is pointing out the thinness of Prince's concept here, isn't he? Well, he's pointing out the thinness of Prince's concept. I think it's also very interesting that this this particular decision has to be consistent with another Second Circuit decision that came down after the Cariou case, and that's the Warhol case and Warhol's use of the photograph of um, Lynn Goldsmith, of the pop singer Prince. And so, well, one of the interesting things is, will Judge Stein's ruling even stand? But what that court in the Warhol court of the Second Circuit said was, judges should not search for meaning. It has to be a different kind of transformation rather than merely commenting on something. And I think also what you see here is, how malleable artist statements can be. At his deposition, Prince was using his own language. Before the court, when he was saying, oh, I'm making a commentary, that was from an affidavit that was written by a lawyer who is putting forth the type of argument that the lawyer thought would be accepted. 
Tell us more about what you just said about how the Supreme Court ruling, to what extent could it invalidate what Judge Stein has ruled? Because the Supreme Court has authority over district courts, right? All federal courts have to follow what the Supreme Court's rulings are. And in this case, since copyright is a federal issue, this is going to affect copyright law from here on out. So what the Supreme Court is reviewing is a decision that came down in a case that concerned Warhol's use of a photograph. And the lower court had said, oh, absolutely, this is totally transformative. I look at it and I see immediately it's a Warhol. Warhol has changed the photograph that looks like of a vulnerable musician into a pop icon. Because Warhol did what Warhol does. He does like he does the Maryland portraits. He, you know, he flattens the space. He uses bold colors and so on. And he's commenting on something. He's commenting on, you know, the pop icon, commercial culture, pop culture, and so on. So what the Second Circuit said in its decision was, yeah, okay, so if you add all these things that are traditionally called transformative and you have a new meaning, a new message, a new aesthetic, that in alone is not enough. And it also said what a judge should not do is search for the artist's intent and the meaning that other people ascribe to the work. You know, when you mentioned quite rightly the fact that when you see Prince's new portrait series in a gallery, you're helped along in terms of how you're going to see it. Um, and people write about it and you're helped along in terms of how you're supposed to understand it. That's the most controversial part of the decision is that Judges are not supposed to look for that kind of help. The rationale behind that in the Second Circuit's decision was judges aren't art critics, which is something that judges have said for a century at least. We are not qualified to judge visual art. And they also said, and any kind of meaning is subjective. So that means we can't trust really what anybody says and moreover, what the photograph is said to me now might mean something quite different 10 years from now. And of course, Judge Stein's ruling right at the end refers to that, doesn't he? He effectively says the works of appropriation artists inherently raise difficult questions about copyright. And that as boundaries between technology and art blend, these questions become increasingly difficult. So this isn't going to get any simpler, is it? It's not going to get simpler. As technology changes and the means of creating art change, these issues are going to continue to come up. And it's especially because each case is looked at on the individual facts of the case. So in the same way that Judge Stein was pointing out how the works that he was looking at in the new portrait series were different from the art that the court was looking at and what he did in the Carrier series, each case in itself is different. So we can expect to have more litigation and this area will be continuing to develop legally. What these decisions do do, though, is they can give some guidance to artists and photographers as to what the boundaries are. And that is important in the cases that never reach the court. That is, most cases concerning infringement are negotiated without going to court at all. So there are a lot of cases of people who aren't as rich as these litigants and can't afford the legal help that it costs. So for there, the court's decisions can affect what kind of art we see in the future. 
Right. And so lastly, what happens next in this particular case? Interesting question. When I said the judge ruled primarily against Richard Prince, it was on a motion for summary judgment. On a motion for summary judgment, the defendant here, Richard Prince, said, we don't need to go to trial on any of these issues. You don't need to examine anybody's credibility. We don't need cross-examination. All the evidence points in my favor. Therefore, you should rule for me, case ends. So the court, in evaluating the four factors in fair use analysis, found that as a matter of law, which means that the works were not transformative, that means that issue itself won't continue to be litigated. But another important issue in fair use analysis is how Richard Prince's work might affect the market for the photographer's work. On that, the court said it needed more evidence. So this means that, yes, he ruled against Richard Prince in certain ways, but he didn't rule for the plaintiffs overall on whether there was copyright infringement. He needs to hear more evidence on that. So the case will continue after, I would imagine, the Supreme Court rules. So then we'll see, you know, is the landscape going to change? It's going to be extraordinary to see it developing. Thank you, Laura, so much. Thank you. My pleasure. You can read more on this case on the website or the app, and you can hear an interview with Virginia Rutledge, the art historian and lawyer, about the Warhol Goldsmith case in our episode from 24th of June last year. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. A former 19th century first-class waiting room that's part of Peckham Rice Station in South London has for 60 years been empty and mostly unused and until recently close to derelict. Restored thanks to a campaign by the local community, it's now the location for a remarkable project made by the US artist Sarah Z and produced by the visionary UK organisation Art Angel. At the heart of the waiting room project is the site-specific piece Metronome, which features an armature of steel bars in which sits a concave circle of pieces of torn white paper, which become screens for projected film sequences. Lurking behind that is what looks like a working desk with a stack of revolving projectors, which appear to be on the brink of being overwhelmed by weed-like floral sculptures. Z has made this new work fresh from opening her exhibition Time Lapse at the Guggenheim Museum in New York, which continues until September. And I asked her about the work. Sarah, as an artist who works with time, I imagine working in a space called the waiting room at a train station is something of a gift, isn't it? I mean, that space is an unbelievable privilege to explore it, to learn from it, to have had really three plus years to return and really think about what it is to be in that space and to feel the trains, the sound of modern life around you. I think the sound in that space is one of the most important things, actually, because you hear this rhythm of the real world while you're actually feeling entirely cocooned in a space frozen in time. Tell me about the way that you've incorporated live sound and and also recorded sound. So there's a to and fro between the kind of found sound, as it were, and stuff that you yourself have involved. So stuff you've captured, as it were. Yes. So over the visits, I would just record things on my phone. I recorded actually pictures of people waiting for the trains that is inserted. But in many ways, all of these images are hidden. But most importantly, I recorded the sound of the trains coming and going. You know, there's an incredible thing about sound when it approaches from afar. Someone told me that one of the reasons we love to actually be at the beach side 
is that a, a wave comes, you know, from one end of your experience to the other. So you hear it approaching across space. So recorded beach sounds to make you feel relaxed will never be able to reproduce that sense of um, movement that that sound is really doing. So the sense that you hear this train very, very far away and it roars up and then it disappears is such a beautiful soundtrack in and of itself. Um, and so I recorded that and it's actually in the soundtrack of the piece. The soundtrack, it also includes a metronome and it includes someone walking through snow. And there's all reasons for all of these things. It includes um, a heartbeat, but it has interspersed the actual real sound that you're hearing in space. So that instead of it becoming an annoyance, like it's not supposed to happen and you're supposed to in a quiet space, it actually really marries and everything becomes porous, real sound, sound that's happening without your control, all become married into one. And even when I was doing the recording, I couldn't tell what was real or not. It's that space acoustically turns out to be amazing. The porosity of the piece is so wonderful, actually. I love the way that the images, the shadows that are cast by the projectors and so on, it all becomes this extraordinary moving state of sort of image flux, if you like. Tell us about that. And that's obviously very deliberate, the way that you've allowed the kind of imagery to be generative as well as sort of made from existing footage and so on. Yes. I mean, one of the things that's really nice about the piece is the sound of, from the piece is from 2013, it's very, very old. So that was a really important idea to me, that everything is interwoven, that sculpture is creating images, images are creating sculpture, there are painterly decisions, the architecture becomes almost kind of a memory palace for the images themselves, so that nothing is separated from the other, and they are actually in a kind of live state of creating a conversation between each other. So the back part of the piece was something that I actually made you know, last week, actually, I came and I thought, this is what I'm going to do with the, with the piece. It, is, it was a small section, a very slight section of the Guggenheim. And I, I really loved what had happened. I found it on site there. And I thought, I'm going to pull up the volume on this. So very few people noticed it. But there was a, a time where a sculpture of a plant was being hit by a video and it created this sort of shadow garden. And I decided I'm going to really make a shadow garden in the back of this space. And I liked um, a lot of the references to Ruskin, to Art Nouveau, to, you know, if you look at the detailing, when you leave the space, when you go back, you notice the grating has this beautiful use of nature and, and decoration. Um, you notice that there's this wild, bushy weeds coming off of the um, track itself. And that in my case, I thought it was interesting to, to actually use um, this kind of reference to nature this very literal reference to nature, not as decoration, but actually as an operative tool to be making a shadow garden. So it really is a sculpture in the service of making a film. So when you go to the back of the piece, you see kind of how film is made. It's unraveled. And you, I mean, one of the ideas for the entire piece is that, you know, everything that is digital feels physical and everything that is physical feels digital. So the digital is always falling apart. It's, it's never these clean edits where you don't really think about you're lulled into this filmic world where time is, you know, carefully edited into a sequence. The idea of the edit and how the edit becomes actually material in the piece. So all of the things, every switch, every change in it is a kind of dying out of video or an appearing, a sort of, I call it a popcorning in of images. So, you know, one will come after the next in this kind of sequence, almost if you're like playing the piano and you see a scale up here, and then you meld them together in your ear. I mean, the entire structure for the piece, I was trying to figure it out because we, 
you know, I've, I've been working on it for three years. Actually, the wife said the sound comes from 2013. So that's 10 years ago. So it's this piling, it's this generative piece that's come from collected over time. But really the sequencing of the video happened right after the Guggenheim. I decided it has to have more of a kind of time that wants you to stay because there's this anticipation. And I think the idea of anticipation is something in the piece that I was really interested in, that each time you locate yourself in the piece, you anticipate something and then it doesn't fully happen. And But then you're quickly plunged into another kind of chapter and then it doesn't entirely happen. And so there's this constant feeling of longing, of perhaps joy when you find footing in the piece, but then also a sense of desire for more when you don't actually have it fulfilled or completed. So I think that is the rhythm. It's very beautiful. Isaac Julian said it was like a poem. I was thinking it also has verses. It has a repeating verse. There is a structure to it. There are 10 verses in it, and there's a chorus that repeats 10 times and breaks that up. Even for me, when I'm watching the piece, I get lost in which point we are in the piece because it in the end became so woven together and like so porous into different moments in the piece. Tell me about the way you built up those images, because as you say, it's built up over time. There are some images which are found, some you've shot yourself. How did you go about organising it? Obviously, because there's related themes, so there's an element of organisation in terms of your choosing. But how randomly or precisely are they composed from your image banks, as it were? So I think for me, it's always really important whether, you know, whether I'm using objects, images, sound, that there's a sense of constant discovery and finding yourself somewhere and using your own image bank or your own sound bank to recognize something. The, the experience of an artwork isn't one of being told, you know, what to see, why to think it's important, but it's one of discovery. So the images are found that way, but then I'm always thinking about it also sort of teetering between knowing and not knowing. So I will juxtapose something that's very familiar, very mundane, something that we can locate ourselves in. I just did that this morning. I'm going to do that tomorrow um, to something like a volcano, which is this kind of unbelievable experience that I have actually never had and only had digitally. And an image like that I'll buy. And I wanted to also play with that idea of our experiences of images come from high, they come low. The authorship is in question. We change them, we degrade them, we manipulate them, we enhance them. The image has an entirely almost sculptural quality to it that is not static in itself. So the collection of them is about making sure that when you experience them, you're always teetering between all of those states, that you find something very mundane next to something very spectacular, something next to you're pretty sure is from my iPhone, you're pretty sure is bought from an image bank. You know, so you see that hand, that collecting has this incredibly diverse range of where you can find things. And I think that is actually just a reflection of really how images have invaded the way we communicate, the way we live, the way we survive even, the way we feed ourselves you know, the way we meet the people that, you know, we fall in love with, the way we die, the way we give birth. So the images have actually become a way of communicating at the speed that we're so in the middle of it. I think we're still figuring it out. But in the piece, I think there's some reflection of that. And, you know, every piece is an experiment. It's really just like creating a live experiment. And there's this amazing moment, which is actually happening right now, 
where you see people react and you don't know if they'll stay. You don't know if they'll leave. Salman Rushdie said this beautiful thing about, well, in India, you know, if you've written something good, because in the villages you would come and you'd listen to a storyteller. And as a storyteller, people would just get up and leave if it wasn't interesting. So you really had to be a good storyteller or you just simply didn't have an audience. And so this moment right now is really exciting because the audience is completing the work. And, you know, whether they stay, whether they don't, whether they sit, you know, I put chairs out because I thought this is almost like a garden. I mean, you want to sit and just have time with it, whether they use them, whether they use them as groups, whether they return. Those are all things that will be really exciting to see. And, you know, I just finished this piece at the Guggenheim and it's kind of a very unusual experience to do two shows back to back. Never would have happened except for the backlog of covid scheduling, um, but was actually had very, very beautiful for me consequences in that these experiments I was doing there led immediately into the experiments I was doing here. And I just actually heard, I just got an email from the head of security at the Guggenheim. And he said, you know, we have to time because of the crowds, we have to time how long a person stays on a ring at the Guggenheim. And he had been working there for 20 years. And he said since the 20 years he'd been there, there had never been a show where people had spent that much time. And they had to actually recalibrate the way that they were letting people into the museum with the expectation that people were staying about twice as long than they normally would on a bay. So that's also part of the timekeeping is, you know, how much time do we spend with an artwork and what makes an artwork actually slow down your time, speed up your time, make you create time. It seems to me that one of the magnetic things about this work and your other works, in fact, is this sense that it appeals to memory. I know that Zadie Smith said this thing about the exploded iPhone in relation to the Timekeeper works. But one of the interesting things to me is it's almost like an exploded memory, a human memory exploded as well. Again, that relates to this whole analogue digital idea, the idea that memories are found in machines, but of course they're found in our bodies as well. And it seems to me that's absolutely crucial in this piece. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why the kind of chorus in the piece works is because it's almost like a memory flip card. Remember that game you'd play where you'd try and remember where where something was? Because that was sort of the base of the piece where, you know, you have hundreds of images all playing at once. And as a viewer, you choose one. You know, it was really interesting. You asked me, I just want to make sure, was that gnocchi being cut? And like no one, yeah. no one asked me about the gnocchi. People are like, is that a pot of fire? Or is that a girl running past the pyramids? But the gnocchi was a very specific choice. And, but, but it's interesting, everyone has a different choice. And you sense there's something personal about that because you sense there's no way I'm making the same choice as someone else in it. But what's interesting in this piece is that chapter I call Things Caused to Happen. And that's something I've made before. So that was sort of in the files of, or the, I would say the shuffled cards that I played with in the editing of this. So that card is played as a kind of drumbeat. But what's interesting when you take it away is when it comes back, there's a sense of, oh, I get to find you know, the thing that I wanted to look at, but I got dissuaded and I sort of focused it on this one little thing. And so you jump to that thing and then that card gets taken away again. And so I think even the process of seeing is a desire to record your own memory of the piece in real time. It really did drive the idea of memory or serendipity drove a lot of the decisions and how the images came together. So I was interested in this idea that during the pandemic, because many of us were isolated, our days became very regulated and we lost the sense of incident or serendipity or running into someone by chance. You know, many neurologists have talked about how that is the way that our memory gets embedded. If you remember these things that you can't control and you didn't know would happen, 
much deeper and, and embedded ways than things that you know having your coffee every day don't get embedded. And so the piece also was structured so that everything would feel as if it was an incident or was a surprise. And there's one funny part of the piece that I actually have a piece, it's a video of a fox in New England crossing the road. And, and it's something I've used in past shows. It's, these are all sort of pieces that I bring in. It's a palette. It's basically a palette of colors, but they're actually a palette mm -hmm. of images. And it was in one of the chapters and one of the sections. And it was a section where there are lots of images going very quickly, um, too fast for you to understand what they are, which I didn't know would work either because it's quite impressionistic. There are a lot of images that you can't tell. So I didn't know if that would keep you interested, but they become almost like an impressionistic painting where you, you accept that it's an image, even though you don't know what it is. But there's a part where it's going very, very quickly. The cards are flipping faster than you can imagine them. Then I slowed down this one card so that it appears almost like a time lapse across the screen. And it's a fox kind of skittering across the screen. And then it continues to these, these faster images. And you have this moment where you said, did I just see a fox? And that's really the way you see foxes or wild yeah. animals in you know, the context of cities where you sort of like, is that, did that really happen? Can that exist? Yeah. And, then, and then magically, you know, the neighborhood in Peckham, I'm seeing foxes every day. And yeah, everyone says, are. oh, we yeah. put foxes in it because of Peckham. And it was actually an old image from the image palette that I added in before we even came here. So there, that was this incredible moment of serendipity. And there's so many because the location is so rich. Walking in, even when you get out of the station, the images, the graffiti, the, the posters that have been torn and ripped and, and the new ones piled over the old ones, you know. The people looking for the train schedule on the phone, then looking up, then, you know, looking across through these kind of strange portals. You know, the station itself is hidden. And so the place in itself is actually this unbelievable, almost like nest in the sky because you, you approach it and you're, it's so unexpected that even the space exists. And then it's so unexpected that the piece is there. And then it's so unexpected that there's a second piece actually behind the piece. So it has this kind of Russian doll experience that of opening, 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 finding, finding, finding. And then as you leave, then you see things anew. Then you see the weeds anew. Probably people are thinking that they should be cut back, but they're such a beautiful kind of force of nature, you know, fighting back against, you know, the built environment. And I think that kind of degradation and that entropy of the building is also something that's very beautiful. I tried to sort of caress the building with the images so that these amazing patterns that come out of the paint that was so carefully painted a certain way, but that nature is sort of, you know, making itself known again by destroying it, but in its destruction, creating these gorgeous patterns of, of time, of the reversal of time in that space. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. A real pleasure. Sarah Z, The Waiting Room, is at Peckham Rye Station in London until the 17th of September. Her exhibition Time Lapse is at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York until the 10th of September. And you can find my in-depth conversation with Sarah on our sister podcast, A Brush With, from September 2021, wherever you're listening now. 
And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julie Mahaska and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Amy and Annie, Laura and Sarah. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.